right, so welcome everyone. Today is the second episode of Take Note, and uh, the title of our uh, of our podcast or video podcast has changed a little bit. Now it's uh, it's going to be conversations with business leaders and change makers, and I think that's a little bit more appropriate, especially for who we're talking to today. Um, Today, our guest is Verlin Gradney. Verlin is a powerhouse, and I mean that in no, uh, in, in no small way. Um, when it comes to startups and finance, Verlin, is, um, he, he knows his stuff, and um, I know you guys will get a lot of really valuable nuggets today talking to him. Uh, Verlin is a wealth manager by trade, but a visionary at his essence. Verlin began his securities career with GE Capital and then, uh, and then owned and operated his own wealth management firm and registered investment advisory in San Diego, California. After 13 years in the securities and wealth management field, Verlin started his own private finance firm which specialized in venture capital, corporate debt, and structured finance. And other those are you know, big words that I think we're going to talk a little bit more about today as well, and hopefully he'll expand on. Uh, currently, Verlin owns and operates an international finance consulting firm called Trade Desk Advisors which specializes in the design and implementation of specialized and customized corporate institutional, institutional offering packages. But wait, there is more. Uh, related to how we first met in 2019, Trade Desk Advisors, through the work of Verlin, launched Mindset Startup Academy to help bridge the gap between founders and early stage investment community. Uh, we'll be diving into that, I'm sure, quite a bit today. Uh, Verlin has a unique skill set um, with which, which uh, marries deep financial expertise with an innovative approach to community building. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Verlin Gradney. Verlin. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks, Puckage. Happy to be here. It's nice to be on the, uh, on the other side now. So now, now, I get to, uh, now I get to see how everyone else feels. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And yeah, so for everyone listening out there, uh, Verlin actually interviewed me um, a few, what, about a year and a half ago, maybe now. It's time. Yeah. Time flies, and actually, there is a there's a copy of that somewhere. Um, actually, on on the Mindset Academy page, um, and also I'm sure on uh, on the internet, other places too. Um, and that was actually one of the first interviews I did. That um, you know, Berlin interviewed me on um, on uh, I believe it was Capital uh, Cap Tables on Cap Tables. Cap Tables and Corporate Governance. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, um, so yeah. So today I wanted to uh, return, you know, partially return the favor, but also um, Verlin and I have had had such great organic conversations over the years, uh, talking about a variety of things. And Verlin, uh, you know, speaks so well and so eloquently on on finance and corporate matters that I thought he had to be on here because of also what he's doing in terms of starting a new uh, it was new startup. Um, I guess it's a Academy, yeah, I think that's the best term for it. is is a is a learning environment and also community uh, for startups. And um, and yeah, why don't we actually start a little bit there? I think really we're going to bounce a lot around a little bit. Um, so excuse me, but I want to kind of really first have you talk a little bit about what Mindset Academy is and um, you know what what caused you to start it and kind of what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, it's still evolving. To your point, it, Academy. Uh, I think is a, is a good terminology, although there's a lot under there. So I'll try to give you sort of the Reader's Digest version on this. But coming from the background that you referenced in finance, a, a lot of my time was spent institutional. And what those folks in the institutional space know, and, and, and if you're not familiar with it, that there's a common language and a common dance that works, right? Uh, and on the supply and demand side or each side of a negotiation or transaction, there's usually a certain ilk understanding and background and if you think about what that does in a transaction, although it can create some conflict, 
uh, it does create, in the ideal scenario, the ability for things to transact and execute quickly, right? It's, it's rather efficient. Uh, it's also pretty straightforward. It's not very politically correct. It's straight down the middle. Um, and when I decided a few years ago, if we can help company series B and beyond, why couldn't we actually do something for the conceptual through series A? <clears throat> so about three years ago, I'm very kind of methodical and problematic in the way that I do things. I'm never in a hurry. Um, so what I did first is I met with a few hundred founders. I met with a few hundred early stage investors and funds. And I used a little bit of my clot and reputation to do that. And it became very evident to me and clear of uh, the disconnect that exists in the startup space in stark contrast to what occurs in the institutional space. And what I basically came up with as my thesis is that al although I love pitch days and demo days and they provide a lot of experience, a lot of the, the early stage investment funds that you see in my startup academy we interview are agreeing to a certain extent that it has created a little bit of a too far romantic view of how this all works. And there wasn't a lot of opportunity out there for founders of all types to understand and learn what happens after the pitch. And so that really gave me an idea to say, let's create a free platform, the Mindset Startup Academy, and let's open it up to everyone, but let's do something different. There's a ton of people out there that can tell you what a 60 second pitch is and what a two minute pitch is. Uh, and to be honest, there's a lot of us in the investment community in the early stage space that are wondering really how effective that is. You know, how am I really supposed to understand or provide any reasonable or valuable feedback when I'm asking you to take this big wide scope and project and jam it into two minutes? So what I, I knew then that we wanted to create a platform that teaches the inside baseball, that dance with you and an investor when you and the team get excited because your pitch deck just got accepted. But even beyond that punkage, I really wanted to get founders an opportunity to understand who we are beyond just a check. Because what you hear a lot of the investors talk about is founders should feel more comfortable that you can interview them as much as they're interviewing you. Because should you be one of the lucky ones to collect a big check, you're basically married for the next seven to 10 years. You really want to make sure that you guys jive, at least on a number of, of criteria to help facilitate that relationship. And the third thing is, I really wanted to tackle the problematic issue that over 90% of these uh, founders that go out to raise capital actually fail. And I truly believe that by understanding the dance, you know, we, from an investor due diligence standpoint, we all read from the same hymn book, I like to say. We, we follow the same factors. The hard part is they're subjective. So if we want to move the needle for founders and help create more meaningful engagements and facilitate more capital, we have to find that common language that exists a lot in the institutional space that's really just sort of butting heads and talking past each other in the startup space. And uh, the way I started it is I picked up my old days of smiling and dialing with a phone book and a phone, and I just started calling people. And I stumbled upon uh, the chairman of the Angel Capital Association, sent him a message, told him I was a big geek for the book that he wrote that talked about investor due diligence. We asked his permission to reverse engineer that book and point it at the demand side. And yeah, we just had our one year anniversary. So um, we started off with some courses and what we found very clearly was that founders have a very finite amount of time in their busy lives. And what we needed to do was to synthesize that information. But I also found very early punkage is that 
I think there's too much in the startup space. I'm no shy. I'm not shy on opinions in the startup space <laughs> where you get a lot of sort of, you know, this is gospel according to growth. This is the way you got to do it. This is the way you got to do a pitch deck. And if you're a founder, it's like a, a tennis match. You're just going. And then before you know it, it's like paralysis by analysis. So in February, we said, you know what? Let's put the classes aside. We want to teach investor due diligence. Here's a novel idea. Why don't we reach out to the investor community? Pick one early stage fund per week. And why don't we ask the actual investment community to teach these things? Mm. And to be honest, it was, I was pretty apprehensive about how that would go down. Mm. Um, but the response was overwhelming. You've got roughly 5,000 early stage investors in the United States, professional investors. Uh, and this year, we'll interview approximately 1% of that entire audience. Maybe next year, we're going to aim for 2%. And the purpose of these, as I stated, is so that founders can get an idea of who are these 5,000. The average founder can probably name you five funds. And here's the funny thing is, they can name you the big funds, the funds that are probably not even in your atmosphere. And there are another, there's about 330 to 350 funds in the United States that are 100 investments or more. The other 4,500 are zero to 100. Yeah. And those are the ones we're interviewing because those are the ones founders should know about. So they join our membership for free. They watch an interview. And here's the deal I give them. If you watch that interview and you find that you might have a fit after hearing that fund manager talk, then at the end of the interviews, the fund managers say, hey, if you think there's a fit and we actually give them the contact information. So we're trying to educate. But at the same time, we're trying to, to solve that day old question of, Every founder around the world asks, can you introduce me to investors? Can right. you introduce me to investors? Right. And so here's a, methodol uh, a methodology to being able to do that. That's phase one. And then we'll start releasing phase two and phase three in uh, 2021 and 2022. Fantastic. Wow. So a lot of information I want to dive into there. There's a lot of, I was taking some notes. Um, uh, I got to work on get, getting that down a little more. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know so much. When you know so much, it's hard to you know stop because <laughs> and it's a it's a complicated area, right? There's so many things to talk about um, in startup world, and um, so a few questions actually I have, but maybe one is uh, going back a little bit. You're talking about you know your your background in investment advisory and wealth management, and looking originally at these, you know, series B and, and beyond private and maybe public companies that you're, you're investing in. And, you know, there's certain requirements and due diligence and information that's that that they're required to provide to you at that higher level. Um, how do you deal with maybe some of that information asymmetry with a startup? How do you, is there a way that you've kind of figured out to maybe fast track some of the due diligence um, at the, on the lower levels? Because I know as a, as a startup attorney and, and you know, and, and corporate attorney, um, that's one of the challenges that we run into a lot is the, some of these smaller startups don't have the information that will make investors comfortable. And, and is, is that even necessary? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And there are a lot of people that said this couldn't be done. Um, I'm not saying this in a, in, a, in a bragging type way, but I don't know a lot of other outfits that are doing what we're doing. And that is we're teaching them saying, these are the typical 80 to 100 markers that we all make our decisions off of. And if I were to break them down, it's basically quantitative and qualitative. And the ironic thing about this, as you know, is that a majority of our decisions are qualitative leaning, not quantitative. But there is an idea that for a long time, people said, well, you can't teach founders how to do that stuff. It's going to go right over their heads. 
Well, you tell a, firm, a company or a firm like us, you can't do it. Now you just created a challenge. And now we're going to try to go prove it. Right. And that's why when, when we're doing these classes, what the way we've gone about doing this is, is we break down the process of investor due diligence into about nine or 10 key factors. This is what the investors come on board to teach. And then what we've gotten really good at over the last few years is when they were focused on one of those nine to 10 pillars, what we do then is just we lay out for the founders to say, these are all the qualitative and quantitative data points that need to be determined here. And the key thing about this is making sure that you can describe things bottoms up, not top down. It's the detail. That's what creates awareness. That's what gets you a higher qualitative score. But then the other thing that we do, Punkage, is we take those and then we break them into stages. So if someone's pre-revenue or let's say very early in traction, you might have 50 data points or KPIs in that area you should describe. But until you start churning 50,000 MRR, you just need to focus on these 15. Because that investor audience you're going to talk to, they know all of this isn't happening. So the first thing that we learned very early on is don't teach the entire spread. Teach what's pertinent to their specific model. And then the same thing would go for those that have decent traction. The same would go for those that have an abundance of traction. So we figured out a good methodology. And then when you see the founders and they, they see all the data points, they're going, Ugh. and then the moment when they see these and they go, okay, yeah, I, I could do that. And it's about following that process all the way down those nine to t uh, 10 pillars and then teaching them over time that bottoms up approach. I truly believe, regardless of the founder's background, you are capable of teaching founders because we're doing it every day. Mm -hmm. But we have to be able to take our patience with that particular process. It's, it's incredibly key. And I'm a firm believer that, and we can maybe talk about it a little later today, we're getting ready to release phase two, which I'm really excited about. You know, I've probably met with 100 uh, funds. I think we've interviewed now close to 40 funds. So pretty soon we'll be one of the larger libraries. And the best thing about it, Punkage, is just listening to these fund managers. I'm a big believer that the pitch deck is almost pretty much dead. I mean, interesting. They all look the same at this particular yeah, point. Tell me more because yeah, I've I felt I felt this for a while and um, uh, I mean yeah no tell me a little bit more about why yeah why it's dead because and also what we're seeing in, in to might replace it. Oh, the largest fund one of the larger funds in terms of deal flow eighteen thousand or more we we're talking to yesterday in their pre-interview. Uh, he's probably the, the you know the fifteenth fund to to confirm this with me. Here was the problem with pitch decks was you know. Everyone, every one of these things looks the same now, basically as a derivative of Uber or Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar to your 60 second pitches, right? It's here's the problem, here's who I am, here's how I solve it, here's my team, here's when I gain traction, call me. There is literally nothing in most of these pitch decks that allow for any understanding of, of, or determination of whether or not I want to engage this particular process. And to be quite frank, the same thing happened for business plans. I mean, business plans and SWOT analysis, what am I really doing with that? Yeah. And so when this gauntlet that you go through of capital raise is so selective, as a founder, you have to determine what type of data do you really want put in front of them to change this? Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. what actually we're doing. So your question earlier about what replaces it. We're building a new format, investor due diligence model where we teach the companies those nine to 10 aspects, only what's pertinent to them. And then we basically turn that into an infographic for them. 
And what we're testing with the funds now is saying, hey, what would you rather have, the pitch deck and the business plan? Or what if I just put in front of you the key matrix that you could use to see where they're at? And then you can have your own qualitative test to see the way they explained it to determine their true level of awareness for the information. Nine out of 10 investors are going to say, I'll take the lab. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I mean, especially just due to the sheer number of, um, of, yeah, of pitches they're going to see that investors don't have time for that. And also, you know, I feel a lot of pitch decks I see and when clients show them to me, um, the assumptions and the, uh, and and, the, the assumptions that they make are just, you know, really based on nothing, right? It's based on what you feel it could be. Oftentimes they lack data, real, you know, real, real data. And um, it's based on what is oftentimes disingenuous, you know, assumptions about a market, which you feel will just want to make you better, look, look better. Um, And I feel investors see through that, you know, seasoned investors will definitely see through that. Um, I was going to ask you about another, you know, pitch, well, another uh, type of business model that we I've used in the past. And actually I've seen, um, you know, a few years ago, I ended up taking a uh, uh, product development class with General Assembly and we, and we learned how to use a business model canvas. Have you seen that used at all? Or is it, is it helpful at all in when showing it to investors or is that, is that too, too pared down? Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a difficult one because, again, there's thousands of them. In, in my personal experience, uh, to your point about the pitch decks, we just released an interview uh, today because we do one every Friday with Ryan Mendoza of Scrum Ventures. Uh, very brilliant guy, interesting fund. Um, and this is something interesting about these interviews, as they tell you. And he literally said, if I see that pitch deck and I see a $100 billion market, that pitch deck just went to the side. And... There are, there are too many ways to try to skin a pitch deck that people try to tell you, but what we really should be doing is taking the advice from the actual people that review 1,000 to 2,000 of them a day, because there is a science to the way that you review through 100, because the average fund of that 10 to 100 sees 2,000. Well, all they're doing is reviewing those pitch decks for markers, and what they're doing is they're trying to figure out what proportion of those pitch decks are going to be the 15 to 20% of them that actually garner time on their calendar that you're actually gonna talk to. So if you look at it through that lens, that's the process that I take as to what should be in that pitch deck. So there's a lot of different ways that people can design them. I'm designing and and coaching founders on, I'm that junior associate inside of that fund. My job is to sit at this desk and review a hundred of them. You're an AI company and your pitch deck is sitting in the middle of another 30 AI pre-seed companies. How do you stand out? Mm -hmm. The other thing that I tell Mm -hmm. founders a lot is there's a tendency. uh, uh, Some of the founders talked about this. uh, Matthew LaRue of Kuritsu said it very well. There's a tendency for these founders to tell their story in chronological order as if they want to hear your entire life story. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a, some could say a crude comment, but it's a very real comment. When you're looking at that pitch deck, this is not a story that we have time to start on chapter one. Your job in that pitch deck is to set that hook and become one of those 15, 20 that actually get on the calendar. So the way that we like to do them is a little less business model and a little bit more about showing awareness in the primary factors of the business model. So for example, market size and opportunity. Be that deck inside that doesn't go $100 million market, I capture 1%, hooray, we're all happy. Do that section different. It doesn't matter what your projection number is. What I'm interested in is the methodology that you use to determine it. 
Mm-hmm. Because as a qualitative test, I might look at that number and go, he's out of his mind. It's not a 10% KPI, but I, but he's on the right path of how he did the long division. Translation, I invest in you, curveball comes your way. Where's your long division to figure that out? Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes for, well, I don't have product market fit. That's okay. Tell me in your opinion when part of market fit is achieved. What does it look like? We use this analogy, Pankaj, of, of your road through capital is a cross-country trip. And every stage that you raise capital is a gas station. So when you get to that next gas station, your job in front of that investor is to tell them everything about that path between the gas station. What did it look like? What was the temperature? What did you eat? All of those aspects of bottoms up are the things that you want to get into those pitch decks. And that's the way that we do them. Here's my analysis of product market uh, fit. Here's an analysis of my go-to-market strategy. Here's the analysis of my market size and opportunity. Here's my uh, synopsis of my market entry standpoint for client acquisitions. And here's what I think that means financially. You want to put yourself into a pack of 100 to 200 pitch decks. That's one quick way to stand up. Absolutely. I love that. No, that's, that's super valuable insight right there. I think um, that not a lot of people share, you know, I mean, it's still, I think a lot of startups, because we deal with a lot of new founders as well. And, and um, you know, people who are first time founders and um, it's interesting to see like, you know, people just don't know where to go about it. So they, they see online, Hey, Oh, pitch deck. Okay. That makes sense. But I think, um, if you're already looking, if you're looking at pitch deck and saying, oh, that's going to solve my problem, I think you're a little bit behind the curve um, in terms of trying to appeal to investors. And I think that's where, you know, having people like you um, involved really, because to be able to talk to, you know, hundreds of investors and funds and get their insight, that's going to the source, right? Yeah. That's where people yeah. want to be. You want to know, you want to listen to them. They're the ones that are going to tell you what they want to see. And that's what you should be, you know, that's what you should be working towards um, in, in not going off intuition or, you know, some feeling of like, oh, I just believe in myself because that, I mean, I've had too many founders that uh, have, you know, feel like they have a great idea, but they ha- but when I ask them questions about it, it sometimes becomes uncomfortable because they haven't, a- they haven't asked themselves the questions that, helpful people like you or being in a community really ask them to really sift through some of those ideas. And I've dealt with it myself as kind of a, as a, you know, building legal tech products. There's a lot of things that I think we're, we, we, we don't know what we don't know. And, and that, that blindness can sometimes cost us a lot of time, energy, and money. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Uh, one of the investors in our interviews that said it best was Richard Sams of Mohara, uh, a venture studio development, brilliant guy, works with a lot of corporate venture partners. And he talked about confirmation bias in small teams. Mm-hmm. And he says, one of the biggest things that we provide value, and I love this saying is, we throw rocks at it. Meaning he takes each and every one and they'll all throw as many rocks as they could possibly think of. And if the concept still stands, then it's ready to go, put that one aside, bring the next aspect. And that takes a certain level of intellectual honesty that just it just seeps through in the conversations when you're sitting with an investor it really really does there's a there's a very fine line between overconfidence fear and paranoia mm-hmm. and there's a blend in there that investors like to find yeah. overly confident scares me uh, mark cuban said it once i like founders that are in a constant state of paranoia that might be a little extreme but the spirit of his comment i understand right if I give you my money, I want you sleeping with one eye open for that money the same way that I would. Right. 
I mean, it makes perfect sense. And I feel uh, maybe, you know, it gives me a little confirmation bias because, you know, with my, with my own business, you know, I always feel a little paranoid, but I guess that's okay. That's okay. You yeah. know, that, uh, that, that's, that's, I guess, like a healthy thing to, to have that concern because, yeah, I think <laughs> once you, once you become complacent with the business and with the, uh, with where you're at, I mean, just, it, it, it allows other people to kind of come in, you know, allows competitors. It, it means you're not really thinking crit- critically about how to innovate and iterate on what you're offering. Um, and, and, and I think that's the beauty about business to me is there's always better ways to do something. And, and the yeah. person who figures out, and it could be something very simple. It could be creating, you know, a sprocket, but the people who create a better sprocket are the ones that will get the market share. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, it's, and that's one of the things that I love most about the startup space is there's a tendency, I think, for founders to think that they have to make the jump, the numbers jump off the page and the valuation jump off the page. And I just don't think that's the case. I think investors are looking for people that can create that spark. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, hey, look, don't worry about tenants of the fire. I know how to manage a bonfire. I just need people that can create sparks. Yeah. That's all I need. All right. Uh, wonderful. That's yeah, really, really interesting. I mean, there's so much to talk about. I mean, you've had so many great videos on, on your mindset uh, channel and page um, in, in you know, interviewing all, the, all these experts in different areas. Um, you're talking about entrepreneurs and you know, are there, is there, are there a few characteristics of the, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of entrepreneurs you've talked to? Are there a few characteristics that you feel stand out to you for the ones that really make it or, or have a potential to make it big versus maybe some of those who, who don't? Hands down. Uh, I'm a, I'm a geek for this question right now. And I ask every investor either on camera or off about this, because here's the funny thing is people can give you a specific diagram from quantitative information of what's a good fit for them. I'm still looking for the investor or fund who can tell me that same level of detail when it comes to qualitative skill sets. So a lot of them will laugh and they'll say it's kind of the gut. So with the luxury I have of talking with these people, there are three to four that I feel are mine and are pretty much shared across the board. One is regardless of whether or not you're you're a first-time founder or, or an experienced person, the ability for selling skills within an initial founding team is always top five, mm. right? Mm. And this can be a challenge in certain industries where you have very technical founders, mm. maybe slightly introverted, maybe not comfortable out there talking. So those particular founders have an extra level of responsibility to offset that. The other thing that I've oftentimes seen is a certain level of charisma that doesn't cross into arrogance. Mm. right you you have to have the ability to communicate and i guess that correlates really well with selling skills but it also bleeds into corporate culture if you're to be successful at this raise you guys aren't the only ones anymore there's another 30 people in there how do you operate are you that person that just barks at people all day or are you someone that has that little bit of a bedside manner so that's a really important one and i think the third one goes back to what i said before of a little bit of that constant state of paranoia matched with a steady confidence. If, if I find one default in qualitative analysis of a lot of the founders, it's overconfidence. Mm-hmm. That scares the hell out of me, yeah. right? Because if, if you're overconfident, then you're not going through this founder life with the proper lenses with your head on a swivel. And it's going to be a matter of time before somebody blindsides you. Yeah. So, yeah. so those are three really important skill sets that I've heard shared across each and every member of the community that I talk with. Interesting. Interesting. Um, 
that's fascinating. Uh, kind of along, along those lines with slight, slight pivot is, um, I mean, it comes up a lot, you know, with early stage founders is, you know, what if they don't have a lot of capital to get this project, get the idea off the ground? Uh, what, what do you, what do you tell them? Like you're saying, Hey, you know, you're trying to build a, let's say, um, a, a hotel, not a hotel, maybe it's a new way of um, a new hostel, you know, where people are going to stay and you're building a different way of doing that, that could require some capital. Um, how do you, how do you approach that? You know, for someone who wants to build something that may require capital, but they just don't have a lot. Of Great question. Great question. Cause I get this one a lot in our Slack community and, and I'm always happy to answer this one because I think this, I think this may keep punkage a good amount of ideas and founders out of the system because of this concern. First off, what before that one, what I always ask a lot of the investors is, does previous experience or Stanford graduate have anything to do with your decision-making process? Haven't met one that said yes. So that's a key thing for founders to know. And it's, it's one that I hear a lot of, I didn't go to a fancy school. I don't come from money. I don't know investors. What am I gonna be doing playing in those circles? Well, put that one aside. Secondly is there's a tendency at time for founders who don't have a lot of capital to put in with an idea and reasonably it could cost 500,000 just to build out that MVP and build the structure. And what I often tell them is if they've at least made a good valiant attempt to introduce to investors and they, it just didn't work or you got really dismayed with the process, it's because a lot of the, they see a lot of these scenarios where I've seen it done the most successfully is there are founders that understand there's two ways in the very beginning. There's the ideal way that I can create checks that will build this out. And if I'm not fortunate enough to have that one, then I'm gonna hustle this thing. And what that means is I'm gonna implement every single part of that business plan other than spending that money. And I've seen this done brilliantly. Zach Slayback of 1517 said it best in an interview when he said, I'll take all the products and features and everything away. And basically said, here's a wire explain to me your business model. And the spirit of that is very interesting. If I tear everything away or I tell founders, explain to me your business model, but you're not allowed to talk about your products and features. Then all of a sudden they're like, well, how do, how do I talk about it? So when I get that point where they're kind of like, huh, that's the part we go, okay. That part that made your brain hurt right there, that's the part that you control. And that doesn't take money. What does this mean in terms of translation or execution? I've seen great MVPs and heard stories of them from investors where they needed 500,000 bucks. You know what they did? They learned how to build websites. Mm. They learned logos and designs. Mm. You and I have a passion for design. It, we didn't learn it overnight, right? right. They created that right. website. They built the pitch. They got online. They figured out how to create mocks. I've seen, I've seen MVPs punkage that are PowerPoint slide presentations with voiceover narrative saying, it's not built yet, but let me walk you through the demo. Right. It's stuff like that. That's what gets across. Yeah. Now, let me be very frank with you. When I tell that to a lot of founders, there's a good percentage of them that don't really feel like doing that. Right. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. But there, there is a way. Now, imagine you come through an investor and you've done all this homework and you focus group and you test and you've got on the phones and you you say, okay, well, I don't have anything to sell them, but I'm calling those customers anyway. And you prove through that charisma and selling skills that I said with this little demo, how are you going to look at that person as an investor? Oh, yeah. It's a hustler. It's totally it's a, Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, it's a small proportion that play the game that way. But I hope that people hear this and and others that tell the stories because you want to get an investor's attention. Do as much as you can without money and present it. And typically, you're going to get a meeting. I totally, I totally agree with that. And I, yeah, and, and I, and, and you know, I think you and I are similar. We we are. There's sometimes a negative. There is a negative a connotation that goes with someone who's a jack of all trades or, you know, maybe a, a dilettante of some sort. But, but I think um, there's a real advantage to, to, as an entrepreneur to being able to wear many hats and do things when they're, when things are necessary. Um, and I, and, you know, in, and I think those entrepreneurs that I've seen that don't shy away from that, who are willing to, like you said, like may have those uncomfortable conversations too, right? Open yourself up to rejection. Those are I've I've seen critical skills to being successful as an entrepreneur because you know if if and I and I think you made a really great comment about um, you know feeling like you don't have the resume feeling like oh you know you didn't go to a great school you didn't you don't have an X, X or Y degree whatever it might be um, but honestly I think those things hold people back a lot more than they actually help people um, because now it's almost like golden handcuffs in some ways at a nice job is that now it's you you feel like you have more to lose because you have built up this persona that you've got to protect to the rest of the world. But if you let go of that, yeah. if you let go of that and say, Hey, you know, those are just the past. Those are, those happen to be parts of me, but those are not me. Then you free yourself up to do amazing things and try things and fail because every entrepreneur, if they're a successful entrepreneur has failed, right? Everyone, me too. You know, I, I, you know, my first two law firms iterations, you know, didn't do well, but the third time around, you know, I was able to figure out a, a way to build it. Um, but, but it was a lot of, you know, and, and persistence too, right? I think that's a big part of it um, is the persistence to see things through when other people may give up um, in, in life and sports. And I think in business too. Um, and I think that's a tough one. And maybe, you know, we, maybe we can chat a little bit about that because I'm, I'm actually interested in kind of hearing, hearing your thoughts on, you know, when to, when to persist versus when to pivot? Mm. Boy, the day-old question. <laughs> the day-old question. I don't expect you to have an answer, but I'd love uh, to hear your, your, your thoughts on it. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question in my interviews when I say, hey, you know, the product market fit's about to be achieved. How do you know when there may need to be a pivot? And I've heard some good answers before, but when... Whenever you're starting out on these processes, to me, it's very important to always lay out the roadmap ahead and to have a set of expectations. Mm -hmm. But don't just put expectations numerically. Explain the rhyme and the reason of how you're going to get there. That's the bottoms up. You know, so like when I did mindset, this is this is sort of lean startup model. It's self-funded. You'd be amazed at, at how little we spend to be able to gain this traction. But that's only because September's activities, we film in, in late August, so next week in September, September's game plan was built in great detail in March. Mm. And yeah, yeah. When, yeah. when we play that way and I get to that next stage and I see the numbers, then my question for pivoting is, did was I totally off base in the minutia that led to that number? Were there unforeseen events that I couldn't control? That means I shouldn't pivot yet. I should go ahead and rinse and repeat this. Or was there just something in that particular approach? We did everything we could. We did everything. We can leave it on the table with clear conscience and say that lane didn't work. So it is a difficult one. And I think it's really a personal one. 
and having pivoted so many times in my life, kind of like you said, as, as you've learned, that's kind of how I've learned. And that's the way that I build it now. So if I pivot, the worst thing about pivot is regret. It plays in the back of your brain. And for me, it was constantly thinking it's actually a nuisance. So that model that I described is perfect for me so that when I pivot, I can shut that part of my brain off and go, don't, don't go back there. Don't look in that review mirror. We beat the heck out of that thing. We tried everything. This is the new path. So and I think that hesitancy and regret builds too much sometimes. So you're saying it's mindset. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, fuck is your ball. That was smooth. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, and I, I mean, I think the mindset is, is, is really part of it because I mean, it's, it's a loaded question on, 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 you know, honestly, and obviously because there is no right answer to that question, you know, when to pivot versus when to persist. Um, you're right. It's, I think it's deeply personal as well. Um, uh, but, but I think it's, um, and I think it's looking at your, your, uh, you know, your, 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 you know, what your, your life circumstances too, right? If you have a family to support, if you have other things, you know, you have yeah. obligations, then that factors in and, and that's okay. Right. And I think sometimes, um, you know, I love the work. I think every entrepreneur, I'm a big proponent of meditation and mindfulness and every entrepreneur needs to have some element of well-being in their life because it is so, there's so many ups and downs in that process. And that, you know, I, I think when the downs happen, you don't take it so personally. And I think that's critical to really having clarity about pivoting versus persisting because, um, you know, there's entrepreneurs out there that have risked everything, right. Mortgage their house, you know, done these things to really, because they believe in themselves and um, some of them successful and some of not, you know, and, and, you know, if you're willing to take those risks, more power to you, but I think, um, but I think, yeah, understanding what your circumstances are is, is really important. Um, and, and yeah. Um, yeah, you, you, you got a gut check as founders. I did this earlier this week with, with a couple of uh, companies we're working with on the advisory side. Um, and we kind of stopped the process and said, this is really a you guys question. And it wasn't about business. It was about their personal ambition, their goals. Mm-hmm. We struggled for a long time through every penny into this thing. When you do that, oftentimes it's not so great back at home when you go home. There's, there's a lot of issues and that have been risked for this move. And sometimes it's time for those founders to have a gut check, right? To make sure to say, hey, should we stay on the gas pedal this high? Like I'm burning out right now. I don't even want to go home. I'm arguing. I'm putting all the money here. I'm not putting it here. So founders, in, in addition to get ahead of those pivots, need to have more of those gut check huddles. Like, hey, man, how you doing? Are you feeling good? Everything good at home? You're okay with where this is going? Um, because sometimes you just put foot on the gas and just say, go, 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 go. And they, we don't have that ability to just check in at a personal level. Cause if you got four founders and two of them are checked out mentally, then you really have two founders running the company. Yeah. So true. And the communication, right. I think I'm a, I love that book. Um, I think it's crucial, crucial communications or crucial accountability. Uh, we're, you know, teaching, teaching founders to have those conversations, um, with with their founders and also with their with their loved ones at home, their partners, right? Making sure everyone's on the same page um, is yeah. is a huge element of this because, you know, I, I I'm a strong believer too. At the end of the day, um, I, I mean, the entrepreneurship journey is so much fun, so rewarding in so many ways. But if it if it leads you to have an unhappy you know personal life or or health, you have health problems because of it, then what's the, what's it worth, 
Right. And, yeah. and I think having, you know, take, having that gut check, taking a step back every, you know, setting time, just like you said, planning in March, what you're going to be doing in September, I think taking time to, you know, think about and every, every your calendar and time for you and time for your own mental well-being is, is so, so incredibly important and not really talked about as much, I think, as it needs to be. Yeah, I agree. I agree with everything going on topically now when it comes to, you know, mental health and the other things. You know, granted, there are the extreme cases, but, the, but there are things that sort of build up, especially nowadays. You know, you, you throw in COVID and maybe someone in the house isn't working and you're trying to raise a startup. It's like now is the time that you really need to double down on sort of those gut checks and, and realities with one another. And, and possibly even for the next year or two until we get into a little bit more familiar or normal, normal ass environments. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, talking about COVID and kind of the world we're living in right now. Um, you know, I feel we'd be remiss not to talk, you know, about kind of the, the unique nature of the world and how that might, how that might shape the, the next few years for, for startups and, and investors. Um, what are, what are the conversations you're having with investors about, about, you know, the world we're living in? Are they now just writing, are they saying we're not going to even touch certain industries or what have you kind of discussed there? Yeah, again, uh, a lot of stuff that I talk in pre-interviews are off camera um, because I'm just out of my own curiosity. So for, so for any of the founders listening, I've yet to meet a fund that stopped raising capital or, excuse me, investing, but uh, timetables have dramatically changed, right? Um, there have been a number of funds that have literally made a very strong tilt and pivot to their investment criteria and are now focusing on projects, concepts, ideas, and technologies directly related to COVID and or meeting the needs of COVID-related health situations. So that's been a little interesting. When I talk with them about where this is going to change business, I'd say, Pankaj, a good three, four out of 10, all agree that the way that we do business from a work environment and a work culture has now permanently changed. And I have to say, after talking to them so much, I subscribe to this. And by that, I mean, it doesn't mean there aren't going to be the brick and mortar offices, but... This has been a, the Dale question for many years since this type structure we're using now was introduced. And there was a, a very strong reluctancy to go, I don't really want to pull that piece out of the Jenga set because if I'm the one that makes the Jenga set fall down, you know, and then here comes COVID and forced you to pull a couple things out of the Jenga set. Now they're looking at it going, holy, it's still standing. Well, can we pull another one out? It did, it's still standing. And and that reality and, and forced nature of that reality, I would agree. I think we're going to see a lot of businesses that are going to be like, you know what? We kept our numbers. In fact, we increased and no one was in that entire side of the building. Yeah. 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 You know? I think it's so fascinating. I mean, so I, I just personally, even we've had to pull some of those pieces out um, as a law firm and, and it, you know, pivot very quickly because, you know, we were in downtown LA um, at the U.S. Bank Tower, which is in the background here. Um, and we had to say, oh, we, you know, we can't be here anymore. We, you know, there doesn't make any sense for us to be in a building, um, you know, where, where we, we can't use it. And, and I don't want to risk any of my employees. I don't, there was no reason for me to risk the health of any of my employees sure. when most of, you know, almost all we can, everything we do can be done uh, remotely and online. And it's been fascinating to see the change, you know, now, I mean, the, I think the, the mental, the well-being of my employees has increased, actually. I mean, 
I think there's obviously some correction for COVID and, and the general you know, stress that we're all feeling. But overall, you know, I've now, I felt like, you know, some of my employees were, were traveling at least two hours a day commuting, two and a half hours, um, you know, a day commuting. Now they have that time back, time with family. And um, yeah, I mean, I just think that it's, it's, it's so fascinating that what, how that's changed LA and, and the world in general. And to, to, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, that my brain goes all the way down the supply chain. It's like, well, what's going to happen to commercial real estate? And, right. you know, how are they going to keep these rent pieces? And, you know, I, I think I have to stop myself from, from going down that rabbit hole. The, the great thing about this whole process is, yeah, there's going to be change. There's going to be some learning curves. We're going to have some peaks and troughs associated with that monetarily. But I think we have to look at the, at the bright side of it. There are certain industries, a lot of industries, in my personal opinion, that got a little fat on the hog. Mm -hmm. And this a little bit of shake up here and shaking the tree, what it's, it's really doing, and you're already seeing is it's bringing back that creative entrepreneurial spirit. When your back's against the wall, you may not have ever worried about coming up with a solution, but just look at the creative ways. Small and large corporations mm -hmm. are getting back into that almost startup-like mindset, right? Where it's like, hey, before you told me I was gonna save ten thousand bucks, I said it's not worth it. Now you save me five thousand bucks. Go, go, give me another five thousand. Where can we where can we trim? Where can we trim? Right. And I, I think that's good for business at certain times. Not to sound in a gleek time, but those particular mindsets are very valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you're right. You know, and I think it's easy to become a lot of these, a lot of industries that become complacent, you know, I mean, not to, not to downplay the, the, the challenges that I think, you know, a lot of small mom and pop businesses, restaurants, hotels are feeling. Um, but, but I do believe, I do believe in the, the ingenuity and innovation of, you know, the American spirit and, and, the, and the human spirit, you know, not American spirit, everyone around the world, you know, we we're very good at adapting humans. And I think um, that's one of the yeah. things that I, that I am really, you know, uh, I'm actually interested to see like how I think there's gonna be a lot of great ideas, a lot of really interesting businesses, a lot of really creative solutions that come out of this, this world that we're living in. Um, and, and I think we're already seeing some, you know. Um, yeah, there's been some phenomenal ideas that I've seen a lot of them are related to tracking uh, one another uh, in terms of hygiene, in terms of sterilizing things. You know, and I've talked to some of these founders and they're like, you know what, I don't want to, I don't want to sound you know, non empathetic to this, but no one listened to me for, for the last four years. Now my dance card's full. Yeah. And a lot of this in the, in the med tech space, you know, we did an interview uh, uh, with Eller of, of Jumpstart Foundry, and I asked her, what are you most excited about? Uh, and essentially, in so many words, Punkett, she talked about it, it's shake up the deficiencies of healthcare. Again, these yeah. were things that were like, hey, don't pull that piece out of Jenga set. No, don't rock the boat. Yeah. And now they're forced to change. And you know, legacy softwares and administration and waiting times and all of these things, if, if we can come out of this on the other side, are going to have far more efficiencies built in, which try, trying to find silver linings, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of things that, yeah, I mean, there's, there's challenges I think still will have to be addressed that I don't, I mean, I'm one of those things that I, I read recently read a book called um, Together by Vivek uh, Murthy, who was the Surgeon General under Obama. And it's about um, the the one of the largest epidemics facing uh, the U.S. is um, is the feeling of isolation and uh, feeling alone. And and you know how do we deal with that? How do we deal with um, you know how how this coronavirus COVID you know world may may contribute to that? 
but I think, you know, I think there's, that's an opportunity for startups and founders and, and entrepreneurs to really address that issue. Right. And I think make some change there. So um, sure. I think it'll, I think it'll be fascinating. Um, the last few minutes, I want to kind of, you know, ask you a little bit more about yourself. Um, you know, I'm always intrigued, like what, what lights you up? What excites you? Uh, I'm a workaholic. So, uh, and, and I say that because it's self-inflicted, you know, <laughs> creating a new brand is something that I committed the next couple of years to. But what makes me the most excited is being able to just relax and chill with my friends on the weekends. It's, it's little things. Um, what makes me excited is cooking on Sundays, starting early. And having the house smell like my mom used to do, uh, right? What do you what, what do you cook? What do you cook? I love I love cooking too. So what do you what do you what do you cook? Yeah. yeah. Well, I uh, uh, I have a bunch of recipes. So all my family uh, originally is from Lake Charles. I was never there. We just got annihilated with this storm, um, uh, and so a lot of a lot of Cajun recipes that luckily I, I got my mom to be able to write down, and uh, I like testing those. Um, but I also like a lot of Mexican food and I have my own, what we call in the house of Berlin's fusion. <laughs> so I have this ability to go well, that part of the dish and that part of the dish and bring it together. Uh, I'm also a grill guy and yeah, when I'm not working, it's relaxing. Uh, you know, I, I live by the beach, so I like to go out by the beach. I like to go run, um, things, things that I say require me to use my brain funkage as least as possible. Yes because yes. the hard drive runs. And then on early Saturdays, I'm one of the weirdos, my, my man City Cup. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm, that, <laughs> I'm that guy that wakes up and season starts in a couple of weeks. I'm that guy that wakes up at four o'clock on a Saturday and the neighbors hear me yelling in my house. Wow. How did you get into, how do you get into soccer? What, where does that come from? Where, yeah. There's a, a friend of ours who, who owned a, uh, a very popular bar in town where we used to live that was from Manchester. And we used to go in there all the time and basically just kind of soaking it up in him and watching the excitement. You know, if, if, if you've never watched European football, it is, it is so different than our current American sports. But what really sucked me in was before I got really deep into preparing for mindset, we did a lot of international traveling. My wife and I went to lots of parts of Europe. And there is a connection like no other when you're in one of those stadiums compared to our, our stadiums, I yeah, believe. Yes. Because the environment, the chance, and you're learning the songs. And, and so after friends exposing it to us and then going there and really getting immersed in it, we came back and I haven't watched an American export in a while. I just watched European football. Really? Wow. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, no, that's very cool. I think you're right. I mean, the, the level of play of European football or, you know, of, oh. it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and we might actually get messy. <laughs> so, let's get the fingers crossed. That'd be, that'd be huge. That'd be crazy. Yeah. Um, is there, uh, is there a favorite quote or saying that you, that you keep up somewhere or that you'll often go to? an old mentor of mine, uh, and I said this the other day, I say this to a lot of founders, that I still live by today because I'm a very left-brain, right-brain person. And he would see myself overanalyzing things a lot, which I can have a tendency to do. Luckily, with a few gray hairs in the beard, you learn how to harness that. But <clears throat> he told me a couple of, couple of great things, but the one that always stood with me, and I don't know if he pulled this from anywhere or if this was his own, he said, you got to realize there's two types of people in this world. There's people that look at a watch, and wonder what time it is. And there's people that look at that watch and wonder how it's made. Uh, when you're in this business of finance, your job in the very beginning is to figure out which one they are. And that will make your job much easier. And 
I stuck with it. It has so many implications in business, particularly when you're combining qualitative and quantitative data like we do in this crazy game of startups. You have to be able to understand that audience. You have to know their mindset. But if you have the ability to understand that mindset, not through questions, but just watching other things, so you might have an investor that's interested and simply wants to know what time it is. And you took off on a 10 minute rant about how the watch was made. And there's a dance to this process. And so I, I use that saying in so many aspects and even to gut check myself, like, how do, how do I want to respond to this? How do I want to play this? And I kind of look at it and go, okay, well, was he asking for what time it was or was he asking how the watch? <laughs> Seriously, yeah, there's a lot of implications. So that's right. my favorite quote. I love that. I love that. I've never heard that, but uh, that has me thinking, yeah, about all the conversations <laughs> I've had. <laughs> it's all it's all about preventing that preventing as much as possible about talking past people. You know, yeah. and I, we do that a lot, especially in when we're typing it in or you know, you you get some kind of text message and you're like, Well, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. And so it constantly reminds me not to talk past, try to understand that person's intention and, and need it. But mm. don't think that everyone needs a dissertation on what's going through your brain. Mm. No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think, yeah, listening, I mean, that's something I'm working on a lot. And I think being in a, in a relationship, you know, you, you realize that more and more, you know, <laughs> uh, yes, your, your partner is sometimes one of the best teachers for you, you know, uh, <laughs> um, but no, this has been great. You know, um, I wanted to actually just leave it with you, maybe talking a little bit more about how people get, a whole, uh, get in touch with you and also mindset and, you know, where they can learn more and uh, potentially yeah, connect. Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, you can find me. I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. So you can just go into LinkedIn, search Berlin Gradney. Luckily with a name like that, you're going to find me. Um, although there are a couple new Berlins in there. Uh, if you'd like to learn about mindset, just visit mindsetacademyondemand.com. That's mindsetacademyondemand. Uh, you'll see all the information that we have on investors and you'll have a free registration link on there. You can join our Slack community and that's how you get access to all of our interviews and content for free. You see our advisory site. So yeah, hit me up on LinkedIn or just visit mindsetacademyondemand.com. Fantastic. Well, Verlin, I really want to thank you again for taking the time and, and talking and sharing your insight and, and expertise. It's been fantastic. You know, I, I, I learned a lot, um, got some great quotes. Um, and, you know, I look forward to continuing to talk and maybe we'll do a part two. Awesome, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks for everyone for listening. I greatly appreciate it. And yeah, I mean, we barely scratched the surface. I can't nice. believe it's an hour. So <laughs> we want to do the trilogy. Let me know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. Have a great uh, weekend. Thanks, buddy. You too. All right. Bye.